All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is my good friend, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, man? Not too much, Josh. Just uh, I'm in a different place recording today. Um, I'm in a I'm in my mom's recording studio. My mom does voiceovers uh, for commercials and stuff like that. And uh, so she's got much fancier gear than I do. And this was the quietest place in the house tonight. So I decided to ask if I could use it for the first time. And she said, sure. So, wow. Look at you. She's got really fancy gear. Like I've got like a, like a junky USB microphone that I plug into my computer and just work that. But she's got like a crazy sure, like awesome microphone. And then she's got like the special interface and like the special cloud lifter piece. Like she's got the whole nine. Plus she's got this like really cool foam shield, like keeps all the sound in one spot. Um, my mom is, I guess, I guess my mom is legit. So I don't know. Yeah. How's that for a flex? I know. <laughs> your own mom, you your own mom has way better gear than you do. <laughs> Dope, man. That's good. Well, it is what it is. Sweet. Well, let's, uh, we do have another person with us here today. So perhaps we could bring them in and introduce them. What do you think? That sounds good. Sweet. Well, with us today, we have Drew Hart. Drew, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Good. Good. Awesome. Thank you for uh, taking time to come and hang out with us tonight. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. And so, uh, but Drew, before we get to that awesome conversation we're going to have tonight, because it is going to be like one of the coolest ones we've had in a while. Uh, one of the most, uh, I would say, um, you know, just important conversations that we've had in a while. Um, there's a question that we ask everybody. And this question is nowhere near as important as the conversation we're going to have tonight. Um, but it's important to Josh and I on a small level. Drew, who is your favorite ice hockey team? So to answer that question, on one hand, I'll have to just be honest and say I don't watch hockey. Yeah. But on the other hand, if I'm going to root for anyone, it's going to be the Flyers because I'm Philly right. everything. Yeah. Nice. And so, yeah. Oh, that man. makes Josh really, really, I was gonna really say, sad. This is where this is where our fellowship has to end, Drew. 
<laughs> nah, just kidding. The fly, I have a bunch of buddies uh, who are Flyers fans from uh, my time spent um, at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. So uh, I learned yeah. to love them. It, you know, it was uh, like one of those love your neighbors or love your enemies even more so kind of thing. So it worked out well for me. <laughs> I'll think back for me as a Blackhawks fan when the when the Blackhawks beat the Flyers in the finals, I just remember feeling like, man, they're just like, they're like the big, bad, tough team. And the Blackhawks were like, I was like, man, I'm sure that they can do this. Like, that's like when Jordan first had to go up against Detroit's bad boys in basketball. And you're like, oh, man, this is going to be rough. But then the, I, somehow they pulled it out. So, um, but Drew, we didn't come here to talk about hockey. Um, so before we get into our, can you just tell us who, who are you? What, what do you do? What's your faith upbringing? Just give us a little bit of your background. Yeah, so I am, well, right now, uh, assistant professor of theology in the department, the biblical and religious, the religious studies department at Messiah College. I've been teaching there for about four years. Um, I live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I'm the author of a book called Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. Also have a second book coming out really soon in September. It's called Who Will Witness Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love and Deliverance. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent about 10 years prior to teaching as a pastor. Um, so, and in two different traditions, one was a black non-denominational church. I would, I would say that they were black Baptists, except not affiliated with a denomination, but they wouldn't claim Baptist as a denomination. And then, um, the other one was, um, in Harrisburg, the uh, Harrisburg Brethren in Christ. Church. It's a multiracial urban congregation in the city of Harrisburg. Um, yeah, I, I'm originally from the Philly area. Kind of lived all over Philly. In Philly for about eight years. Lived in, grew up in Norristown, Pennsylvania for 15 years. Lived in the suburbs of Philly um, for three years. So I've kind of been all over the place. Um, so I've, most of my life I've bounced back and forth between Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and Philly. So those two cities have been very formative and um, those are where my roots are kind of planted most. Um, right now, I do a lot of work in my city. I partner and um, actually I'm a co-leader for a group called Together. And what we do is we bring Christian leaders together to partner and collaborate with good work that's happening around the city, organize activists. Um, I also do a lot of anti-racism trainings specifically geared to the church. And so all over the country, I've done um, anti-racism work with kind of a theological kind of bend towards it. Um, and so a lot of the stuff that comes out of trouble I've seen is related to the kind of work that I'm doing with churches um, all the time. And let me see, anything else? I'm married. Um, been married for 10 years. I've got three kids. Um, they're nine, seven, and three. And you can learn something about me by the names that they have. My oldest is Micah after the prophets. Our second is Dietrich after Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. And our youngest is Vincent after Vincent Harding, who not everyone knows him, but he was a good friend of Martin Luther King. Um, he was involved in the movements. He um, kind of moved back and forth a little bit between Mennonite church and black church spaces. And so um, he kind of, um, represents the kind of quirkiness that I represent, which is someone who lives in the world of black church in Anabaptist spaces and kind of has both feet in both worlds um, all the time. 
Yeah, that's <laughs> that's awesome. I remember uh, I was talking to you for uh, another purpose a couple of days ago, and you you mentioned like this phrase that you coined or kind of made up, like, and I I don't want to butcher it, but I think you called it anablactivism. Is that yes. right? Yes, I love right. that. Anablactivism. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. So anablactivism. I say it's three things, right? It's anabaptism, black theology, and activism. What happens when you take all those things? and allow that to shape our um, discipleship and, and ways of following Jesus into the world. Yeah, yeah dope. And a, a, a really great way, I guess, to kind of see anablactivism in action is through this book that you wrote, uh, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. And so yeah. uh, the topics and the um, discussions that you put forth in this book is what we wanted to talk to you about tonight. So Excellent. we're excited for that. Yeah, and uh, Marty has... Our, oops, I'm going to hold on to this. Marty has our, our first question for you. Yeah, so Drew, I just just first, you know, wh why did you write this book? What was the trouble or the problem that you saw that our culture needed to hear? Yeah, so and maybe I have to contextualize my, my life at that moment when I wrote it. I was actually a PhD student, um, and I was locked away in the library, wrapping up, you know, coursework and prepping for comprehensive exams and things like that. And you have, at that moment, um, Ferguson is erupting, right? Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter movement is, is emerging. Um, and I'm watching Christians in particular have terrible conversations around race and racism, um, not engaging and responding in really meaningful ways. Certainly didn't seem to reflect um, the Jesus found in Matthew. Luke and John, who identified with the least last of society, those on the margins of society, who he himself was a, a person who experienced brutality and then um, state-sanctioned execution himself, right? And so, so I, I was struggling with that and also then struggling with the fact that here I am doing this academic stuff and getting pulled away from what I had been doing, which was working in the community on the ground. And so I felt like I had something to say. I been doing anti-racism work for churches um, and so I just wanted to really um, create some space to just have a heart-to-heart -heart, uh, conversation with the church challenge the church to think about this anti-racism theory but to think about Christian discipleship right and how it relates to um, how we respond to uh, racial injustice and oppression and violence that we see so often in our society and so it was the frustrations and the pain and the suffering the black community was going through the failed conversations that the church broadly was having um, and it was my own um, kind of zoning in on my sense of vocation that just because I'm a scholar doesn't mean I have to write to scholars all the time right yeah. all those things kind of converged um, in me writing um, Trouble I've Seen. Sweet well I think perhaps maybe the best way to kind of frame our whole conversation uh, for tonight is with a story that you actually, it's not like the first story you open up your book with, but you do open up with a story about yourself and another fellow pastor uh, going out and having a cup of sweet tea together. And I think that story kind of would do a really nice job of setting the tone. So could you share that with us? Yeah, um, it's a story. Um, so there was a pastor, he was from the suburbs of Philly. I was living in Philly that time, but we both um, attended the same seminary. And so he 
out, wanted to just connect. Um, and so I agreed. And so one summer um, in the middle of the afternoon, we got together at a McDonald's um, and we both got sweet teas. That's all we got. And we just sat, we drank our sweet teas and we just swapped stories back and forth. And um, in some ways, like I, I say to people, like in some ways it's just a very human moment, right? You, you're just sharing stories going back and forth. We agreed on some things, we disagreed on some things and it was just meaningful. Um, but as we talked, eventually, um, my pastor friends here, he, and he was, I should say, he's a pastor of this kind of emerging, like growing, at that time, 20s and 30-something-year-old church that's kind of really bubbling up in the suburbs of Philly. I um, mean, he was an author and engaged and kind of traveling around and doing stuff like that. And so um, we're chatting, and he, he grabs um, the sweet teacup um, between one of us, and he puts it right in, in the middle, and he says, Drew, do you see this cup? Do you see that there's, you know, a logo on one side and, and writing on your side and, and I can't see what's on your side of the cup and you can't see what's on my side of the cup. Uh, and then he goes on and he, he continues and he says, I need your eyes to see what's on your side of the cup and you need my eyes to see what's on my side of the cup. So I'm like, oh, we're having a nice little um, after school special moments, right? If everybody still knows what that is, right? <laughs> um, so... So that was nice. And so it was, it was a nice gesture, right? That's what he was doing. So I let him finish. Then I, I, I said to him, you know, that's really nice, but you know, the world doesn't work like that, number one. And secondly, I already know what's on your side of the cup, right? Um, and of course, that seems like the most obnoxious thing. I knew when I said it, that it was going to be probably heard as kind of obnoxious, right? <laughs> How are you going to say you know what's on my side of the cup? So I went on and explained exactly what I meant. And I said, you know, like, um, even growing up in a black neighborhood, I still had majority white teachers. Um, the curriculum was majority Eurocentric, right? In terms of literature and history and all that kind of stuff that we were learning. Um, in fact, at every single stage of my education, even all the way up through the PhD, I had majority white teachers, right? Um, when I went to college, I was the only African American on my floor um, my freshman year, right? And so I was navigating this completely new cultural space um, where I was the only African-American. I had to navigate and figure out what was going on, the culture, the music, the references, all these, so much stuff that was just new to me. Um, even today, I mean, I'm constantly, um, before, I mean, I give talks, lectures, conferences, church, all over the place, right? Um, and I'm constantly before majority white audiences who I'm giving talks on race in particular, and I've got to figure out what people think about this black body before them and what I'm saying and how they're receiving and perceiving me, right? Yeah. And so my whole entire life, I've navigated um, white dominant spaces, even if that wasn't my home base, right? I've had to enter into those spaces. I have, I've been educated in those spaces. I've had to learn and understand the histories and intellectual uh, knowledge and art and all that kind of stuff, right? Pop culture, all that kind of stuff is just a part of my life that I've had to navigate in one way or the other. And so what I, I wanted to explain to him is that, you know, for, for most people of color, black people in particular, we've always had to navigate both of those spaces. But the problem is, is that that doesn't even have to be reciprocated. And so I explained to him, look, you don't have to do the same thing. You can go your whole entire life, never put in the black community, not read black authors, not black intellectual thought, black music, arts, right? Any of these things. Um, uh, and you won't be, penalized for for that you can still be successful he was already successful right and that wasn't a, a distinctive of his life 
And so I wanted him to begin to see that what we're talking about is not just what we need, not just a uh, cultural exchange program of swapping stories. I mean, that's nice and that's good and we should do those things, but that in and of itself won't solve the problem of racism in our society. We need to go deeper than that and realize that there's an unleveled playing field because the actual institutions of our society often have been designed and created for white people, right? I mean, that was my experience of even college, which I loved my experience. There's so many things that I, I got from it, right? But I also rec recognized very clearly that it was designed with white people in mind, right? Mm -hmm. The curriculum, the hires, the faculty, they're all, they're trying, they're trying to grow beyond that. But that's, that's its origins and it has to actually break out of that. And so when we look broadly then across society, um, we see all kinds of systems and, and structures and institutions, policies in place that advantage people, right? And it's that reality that we have to kind of come to grips with. And so um, me kind of pushing and talking about this sweet tea cup experiences, I think, hopefully, I think a jarring experience for folks because it forces us to reckon with the fact that while I think many white Christians want those relational experiences, but don't always necessarily want to grapple with the systemic problems and injustices that are a part of our society as well. And I think that's not good enough to just for the churches to have pulpit swaps or potlucks with, you know, uh, racial minority church um, in response to racism, um, but not care about the fact that their schools are not being funded fairly, right? Or that people don't have access to livable wages or jobs or healthcare or mm -hmm. even quality and affordable housing, right? Like these kind of things also matter, right? Um, and so um, hopefully that story um, just begins to help us see that there's so much more to race and racism than what we all recognize. Yeah, that's, that's so good. And, you know, as, I'm, as I was, you know, preparing myself, just, you know, thinking through for this, for this conversation today and uh, just kind of, you know, thinking, I, I began thinking back on my own history the things that I've experienced. So I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, the northern Chicago suburbs. Um, I went to, I, I, I grew up in and went to in an area that was pretty affluent school. Um, I had, I remember I had Bill Hartwright, the NBA player. His son went to school with me oh, wow. cool. uh, when I was in grade school. Um, so I remember being taught my parents that racism was not okay at all. And I remember being taught from my grandparents even. So, you know, you consider some, some people have stories with their grandparents being racist and trying to grapple with that. Um, but in my, which, yeah, Josh is raising and uh, that was not my story. Uh, everybody that I was involved with spoke against the idea of what racism meant and what it meant to put somebody down based on the color of their skin. I remember that very vividly as a kid, um, somebody, either a teacher or, or my parent or somebody saying, no, that person is equal. There's no, there's no separation about who those people are. And yet, when I back on the education that I received, when I, by the time I was in college, I can legitimately say that I would, I would have argued that racism was no longer a problem in our country. Uh, and so even though I was taught this, this, this specific idea that is very true, I, what that, what that ingrained in me based on the education I received through everything else was that it's no longer a problem. And so if like, so don't even worry about it. Don't even think about it anymore. Um, and I think to get back to the beginning, 
that because I think many people like me, white people, if we're honest, that may have been a lot of our story too. Many people may go back and say, oh, well, racism really, really isn't that much of a problem. But you see things like Ahmaud Arbery happen and you say, okay, well, maybe there's a few pockets of that, but like some people are willing to kind of still say, that's not me. So I don't know that I need to do anything about it. So my, I guess what I'm thinking is maybe we need to get back to the beginning and define what racism and race really is. Like what race is as a hierarchy, whiteness as this social construct, blackness as a social construct, which you talk about in your book. So can you define racism and race in that, in that kind of racial hierarchy standard? Yeah, I mean, which I mean, you already said like race is a social construct, right? And so I, even just saying that sometimes it's hard for people to grasp, like people sometimes still wrestle with the idea that the biological claim or the, an idea of race, that it actually has no biological merit to it, right? Um, in fact, there's interesting findings, like when they talk about like DNA, sometimes I think they say like, I might get this wrong, but the idea is true that I think um, folks from Western Africa have more in common in DNA with many in Europe than they do with like folks from like, you know, East or Southern aspects of the continent, right? Yeah. Um, because of our racial categories, we bought particular people in a particular way, um, but it doesn't necessarily, I mean, the, our, our categories are arbitrary and they're designed to categorize, but not based on actual like biological scientific like significance to it, right? So that's one thing. Racism, however, I think one of the challenges is that we're often using different, uh, what, many operating out of different definitions while using the same word, right? So what we mean is always the same thing. So I think the average person, when they say racism, they're talking about like personal prejudice or hatred from one person to another based on the color of someone's skin, right? That's kind of a common definition that I think most people are operating out of. Um, and so, and in particular, they're thinking of very specifically about like, KKK kind of violence, neo-Nazi kind of racism, that kind of stuff, right? And that's bad racism and that stuff. We've seen a decline. There's certainly, it's certainly not as acceptable to, to be a part of the KKK or neo-Nazi. Certainly there's upsurgence, right, in the last few years. Still, um, it's not like mainstream in terms of like um, broad mainstream white America that's not acceptable, right? And so I imagine when you have parents and teachers and stuff saying, you know, race is bad. That's some of what people are thinking, right? These neo-Nazis, there's just not, they don't want that to be a part of, of what's seen acceptable in society. Um, but that's one definition. But if you were to like go into a sociology department um, or critical theorists and, and ask them to define uh, racism, they're not going to talk about uh, personal prejudice as a starting point. They're actually going to look at system institutions and structures, right? They're actually looking at how do we organize society? I mean, that's a very different way of thinking about it. How is our society organized by race? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you can see, even just on a geographic level alone, right? You can see how race has still deeply shapes our lives. Um, and we, the, the impact of redlining and restricted deeds and covenants and sundown towns and hostilities and FHA loans and who, you know, all these kind of things. I mean, there's a history that has shaped space in this land in the United States deeply yeah. by race. And it's still alive. Certainly there are some communities that are more diverse than others, but overall it's actually pretty striking in ways that I think sometimes we ignore. 
and even broader than that, right? When you look at, at policies and institutions, um, in what ways do they advantage um, certain communities and harm and disadvantage other communities, right? Things like our education system, which most people around the world think is ludicrous that we could set up a, uh, the funding of education based on zip codes um, so that poor people <laughs> get the worst education yeah. and funding, right? Um, but we're okay with it because I think because of the history um, that we're allowed, we're okay with poor and especially poor black and brown communities with being underfunded. And so there's no compassion or response to change the systems and policies to something more equitable, right? Um, and so, yeah, so racism, if you think about it from that broader standpoint, um, in many ways, it's some of it's actually fairly measurable, right? You can actually see impact in the outcomes of racialized of our racialized society and the ways our systems and institutions and our policies are set up in a way that end up with the results of what we have today. And so, um, so there's a need. I call it a thin definition and a thick definition of racism, right? Thin definition is looking at matters of the heart and personal prejudice. Those things are important, but the fact of the matter is only you and God know what's happening in your hearts, right? Um, but when we're looking at policies and practices and institutions, structures, the, how we organize society in that broader sense, um, those are things much bigger than us that we can actually see how it unfolds. The aspect of racism is then the hierarchy of it, right? Um, that's that this idea be as Western Christians, right, are going to Africa and Latin America, they're actually um, constructing ideas about these other worlds and other peoples that they don't understand. And they're, they're categorizing them on a hierarchy, right? And, and you got to remember, like, this is a moment of the Enlightenment as well. And so they think they're being scientific. And so you have like Immanuel Kant and others who they're claiming to be objective. And so they're categorizing and they're saying the European is superior, the African is the most inferior, and then they would scale everybody, all the people um, in this hierarchy, laddering people, right? Yeah. Um, and they, again, they think it's just a natural and uh, objective assessment, um, and they don't see their own cultural bias in it. But what happens when that gets carried and just becomes unconscious and just taken for granted, where white people are as good, as righteous, as more beautiful, right? All these things as black black people, dangerous, criminal, ugly, lazy, right? The, these lenses that we read people groups through without actually getting to know them, um, that's that's where the, the power of race plays in. And so sometimes I even talk about race, the optics of race. Race is just as much about seeing and being seen in the world, how we see others, um, the lens that we don't even know we're seeing through and how people see us and interpret our bodies, right? And think that there's some meaning attached to the race that we're um, categorized by. And so I think that um, there's so many more dimensions to racism. And when we have that thicker definition, I think actually in a better situation to respond faithfully as followers of Jesus to them than we are with the thin definition where we're fighting about who the bad racists are or if someone had bad intent or not, things that only the person and God understand fully what's going on on the inside. And, you know, I'm just thinking about that. I'm, I'm a student of history. I have a history. Um, and I'm just thinking again more about my own personal experience. And as I remember learning about history and then even going through college, learning about history, I remember a one thing, you know, like I remember just being taught that, 
the slave trade in America, the Europeans would simply go into these African villages and they would just steal people. They would literally take them and put them on a boat. And many times these people had no idea where they were going. They didn't know what was happening. And then they, before the, that was just their life. And I remember being like, yeah, well, that's totally wrong. And I know that that's not right. And I, but I, I, as I, as I think about it, it was never explained to me ever why the Europeans believed that they were superior in any way where they could then just go in and do that. And I, maybe I just assumed, oh, well, they just use military might and they just picked somebody and it just happened to be Africans and it happened to be, you know, people that were living in the islands in the Caribbean. But I, I think that you're, I think what you're talking about is so good is that it wasn't just by chance they decided to choose Africans, but it was based on this hierarchical system where they decided we are superior, they're inferior. And so because they're inferior, we can impose our will on them. And they'll do whatever we ask them to, whatever we tell them to do, I guess, not even ask. Um, but it just was, you know, as I think about it, I realized, I'm realizing more and more and more, there's so little that was actually taught to me about the why in the, in the lens of saying, this wasn't just chance, this was racism. Yeah. And it was exactly the way it, it's, it was, it started in the 15th century or before and so now in the 21st century, when people say it's embedded into who we are as a culture and as a country, that's what they mean. It started back then, before this was in a country, before this was even a thing, and it didn't go away because it, didn't, it wasn't nipped in the bud immediately and it wasn't just stopped altogether because there wasn't anyone to tell them not to do it. So as you're just, I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of pontificating because I'm hearing you thinking more and more about my own upbringing and I'm realizing how detrimental to my own learning and how detrimental it was to my ability to understand history as, as in full into what it really means for our culture and why in 2020, it's still a problem. And many of us just don't want to look at it. <laughs> and, and we kind of want to put it from the corner or put it on the shelf behind the book we've already read and say, ah, I read that one already. I don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. And I think the, the history learning, because I, I, what's the saying, you know, if you want to understand where to go, you have to understand where you've come from, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And by not being, by not telling a truthful narrative of how we got to where we are, we can't grapple with the full realities of the complexities of where we are and can't chart our way out of it. Yeah. So we're kind of stuck because we don't see ourselves, you know? And I think that there is, there's a real deep need for, um, for Christians in particular to do some homework and study and learn how you go from Western Christendom to colonizing and conquests to, and slavery to developing these racial hierarchies, right? Um, all the, there's a story. There's a really powerful story that needs to be told. Challenging, sometimes painful, but needing to be told for us to understand where we've been, so that we can chart a better way forward. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, Drew, but I think this, like what Marty's talking about and what we're talking about, is this idea that you talk about in your book called socialization. Right? Is this? Yeah. Did I get this right? So, like this idea that there's a dominant cultural narrative that is based off of, like it, it, it's built on the racial hierarchy that is established. And so like, for me, 
I think an example where I saw this in my personal life is I remember one day looking at the bookshelf behind me and just looking at all the books. I mean, there's a stupid amount of books behind me right now. And, and thinking to myself, 99% of the people that have written the books on this bookshelf that have shaped my theology, that have shaped my Christian faith are white educated males and that is socialization right right absolutely okay can you kind of like um talk about that a little bit more just kind of open this up to maybe how socialization plays out in some other ways yeah i mean you think about it um what do they say i think for kids they learn more from um what's caught than what's Right. So, so most parents, they think about on the sake of race and say, you know, I teach my kids to treat everyone the same, right? That's what most white parents would say, right? <laughs> I teach my kids to teach everyone the same. That's the phrase that you hear over and over and over again. Yeah. But then what do kids observe and see, right? Only parents only interacting mostly with white people, shopping in white neighborhoods, visiting white homes locking the door, acting nervous if they're driving through black neighborhoods, never having black people over the home for dinner. I mean, they're, they're seeing something else that's a little bit more complex than just, I always treat everyone the same. Um, and so they, they recognize that there's certain places that their parents seem to feel like they belong and certain places that they don't seem to belong, right? Uh, there's these other things that are happening. Children are being socialized. They're socialized by their communities, by their churches, we're socialized by the things that we prioritize, right? Um, and so there's forces that work beyond just our intent. Um, so, and I, so when I say like parents say that, I don't think, I, I believe that they generally want to teach their, pass on to their kids to treat everyone the same. I think that, that that's the intent behind what they want that for their kids. But I don't think they're taking seriously how much socialization shapes us, that we're always being socialized by something. Um, and so if you're not actively going in a direction, there are great currents and forces. And in this case, we have a society that has literally centuries of white supremacy that shapes it, right? I mean, literally, there's more years of slavery than not. Nonetheless, adding to that than Jim Crow and lynching and policing and all that other stuff that went on for about 100 years, right? Um, so the, we're even to pretend like, like things have been great since Martin Luther King died, right? Um, even if you fell into that narrative, that would certainly still be just about 50 years, right? Centuries of, and so I guess the question is, to what degree does that inertia still live on in our society today? How do, how do those ideas, myths, and when I say myths, like stories and narratives that, that we live by, right? About, let's say, um, uh, one controversial one, right? Just sim something as simple as suggesting that America is so great and better and chosen nation, right? Well, aside from it, they're kind of the nationalistic, religious nationalism that is some sometimes embedded in that. But you can also only say that about how great America is. It's the best country by erasing particular stories like Native American genocide and forcible removal of, of from from their uh, ancestral lands and, you know, and uh, the century slavery and oppression that went on. Like, how can you talk about um, the great of America 
so easily and so smoothly without grappling with those things, right? And so I think there's um, ways that we're socialized without necessarily being aware of it. Um, and certainly our reads deeply shape us. And sometimes we're not even aware, right? That again, people who'd say, ah, I treat everyone the same. And before they know it, all their bookshelves are all men, right? How did that happen, right? I never, I didn't choose, I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't anti all these other people, but it just happened. Right? These forces are really powerful. Um, and I think that, um, and so, and I, I, I do think that scripture actually is really interesting to think about the language when Paul talks about the forces, uh, spiritual forces, right, and authorities and powers. Because um, it's, so, it's both a sociological and spiritual combined together to say that there's these forces at work in our lives that are greater than us, and that sometimes we're captive to, right? Um, and I think that naming that there are things that are, that we're captive to that shape us and, and in some ways manage our lives, right? In ways that we're not aware of. And until we notice it and can name it and identify it, um, we're not ready to resist it. And so um, I think that that's the case for socialization. And so I think we have to be very aware that um, our hearts is not gonna just, and our intent is not in and of itself going to resist a socialization. Um, and I think that, and so in other ways, we're just, we're always being discipled by something, right? Yeah. If we say it in Christian terms, we're always being discipled by something. We're always being formed by something. Um, and what, what are those things going to be forming us? Is it the currents of our society, um, the stories, narratives, the values, the unconscious ideas and ideologies that have been around for centuries? Or are we going to explicitly follow the way of the crucified and resurrected one, right? Mm -hmm. um, and resist um, the power to lord over others and, and the temptation to denigrate those who have been marginalized, um, to resist um, hierarchies um, that, that dismiss and deny um, the humanity and the image of God in people. And so, yeah, socialization is powerful. Um, and... I mean, I don't know if you want me to get in, but like one of the ways I talk about it in the book is, you know, when I talk about the don't go guts, I don't know if that's something you want to get into, but I think that is one of the ways that I think um, in my chat, in my book, I get at just the power of socialization and the challenge that we have um, to kind of break out of it, which I do think Christianity offers for us. Mm. Yeah. We definitely don't want to, we, we don't want you to give away everything in your book because we also <laughs> people to go and buy your book uh, and read your book uh, buy it um but joshua i, I, I want you to i want you to follow up because i'm sure you, i know you have one yeah i wanted to i did want to jump in though real quick drew and ask you because i think so the socialization thing um hit me really hard recently in a conversation um when I can't recall you were if i remember correctly you were a part of this conversation i can't recall who said it um, but somebody brought up the point that racism is not just a sociological issue, but that in the church, it is a theological issue. Right. That was what I said. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that hit me like a ton of bricks. And then in your book, you really push that and you, you show like, we have this thing called white Jesus where people right. grow up believing that Jesus looks like Thor, <laughs> right? And like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it sounds silly and stupid to say, but it is so true. Like 
this, I'm going to share a story real quick and it sounds ridiculous. And then I want, I want to hear your opinion on white Jesus, but this happened during my time at Messiah college, a professor told the class that Jesus was not white and this girl lost her shit uh, stuff. Sorry. She like, dude, she, I promise you, this is not fake. She pulled up a picture on Google images to prove that Jesus was white. And I am not kidding. <laughs> so that sounds stupid on so many levels, but it was such an affront to her yeah. that Jesus was not white. And I think that is an extreme example, but also in a lot of ways it's not because we've lived with right. white Jesus for a long time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So white Jesus. Oh, me and white Jesus. Yes. <laughs> um, just having a conversation last night about white Jesus. Um, let, let's go back in history a little bit, right? So you have, um, so if you're thinking about history and Christian history in particular, um, for a, the longest time, which people forget, number one, Jesus but you could call him an Afro-Asiatic Palestinian Jew living under Roman occupation, right? Uh, um, just to, as a starting point. But, but Christianity grew in the East, not in the West at first. It was the majority in the East for a very long time. Um, eventually, though, um, the West does um, begin to be the majority of the Christian population. Um, and... and after a while of that, um, you could argue that what begins to happen is that Western, Christ Western Christians um, begin to forget in some ways that, that Christianity um, was indigenous to the East and not the West, right? Um, and so I call it sometimes a, a copyright on Jesus, right? They, they think that they have a copyright on Jesus and a copyright on Christianity because Western civilization and Christianity get conflated and entangled with one another so much that they can't see um, that, that they actually um, have been, they were the beneficiaries of entering into somebody else's story, not that they were um, sharing the good news. It, they weren't the heart of the story initially, right? Mm. Um, and so the conflation of Western Christianity um, with Western civilization um, created all kinds of problems. I mean, again, this idea the Bible being indigenous to the West, Jesus indigenous to the West, Christianity, right? We're, we're the proper protectors of these things. And if you want to come and meet Jesus, you've got to come through us and become like us, right? So and you can see it easily through history. Uh, missionaries go out uh, all around the world at certain historic moments in history, right? And say, oh, come be like Jesus. All you've got to do is cut your hair, change your clothes, emphasize <laughs> your name, cut yourself off from your tribe and your customs and your people, right? And all things die, all things become new. Voila, Jesus, right? But, but who are they really being transformed after? The image of Jesus or Western man, right? I mean, what's actually happening at that point? So, um, and so... One uh, theologian, I really th like his language. He says it like this, uh, Willie James Jennings, Christian Imagination. He talks about um, how Western Christians uh, had a, a loss of Gentile identity. They forgot that they were Gentiles, right? Mm -hmm. And were engrafted into somebody else's story. I think Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 20, right? Where you were once afar off and now have been brought in and brought near outside and now have been brought into the household of God, right? Um, that, that loss of gentle identity 
made them have this sense in which they were the owners of the traditions, and that they were to referee it, and that they were to police it, and it had to come to them and through them and become like them to, to meet Jesus, right? And so, um, and so this kind of malformed perception of their place within the story of Israel um, as a replacement, as the new chosen nation, right? America, everybody, Germany, America, the British, everyone thought that they were the new chosen nation, right? Um, but it's this kind of placing Israel as the new place now in which God's favor is resting upon. Um, and so white Jesus is out of that context. Now, in particular, um, the real truly whitening of Jesus is actually a really a United States story. It's an American story in the truest. A lot of people think Europe. Yeah, there's some European imaging of, of Jesus, but there was no fixed image of Jesus in that kind of way um, until, you know, really what happens in the United States. And, and so first you have the, the whitening of Jesus, then like the Nordic Jesus, right? The blonde hair, blue eyes and all that stuff, especially as um, they're wrestling with, you know, the Italians and and they need you know, super white Jesus, right? Um, and so there's ways in which um, Jesus is, is being converted. Um, um, he's being colonized and becoming a white man himself from, from being a Jewish, Jewish man living, you know, under Roman invasion to, to representing the best of the West, right? He, he, he's the people of the West. He represents us. And he blesses all of this. He blesses slavery. He blesses Jim Crow. He blesses our law and order system, mass incarceration, all this stuff. He blesses our apolitical response to black suffering and brown suffering. Um, he, he blesses our, um, our laws around immigration, right? All these things are blessed by white Jesus. Um, and so it's not just in uh, the actual depiction of Jesus. There's a historical error in terms of what he looked like. But it's also a theological problem because by whitening Jesus in this historical moment, it's actually making a theological claim that Jesus identifies with those in power rather than those who have been oppressed, right? No longer the least and last of society. Um, now it's those lorded over that Jesus identifies with most, right? And so it's a theological problem just as much as it's a, an inaccuracy in terms of a depiction of what he actually looked like and what lands he represented in the culture that he was raised in. Yeah, and that that white Jesus has led to the complicitness of the church in racism. Like, yeah. it's crazy. And I think one more thing, since you said something controversial, I want to say something controversial too, because um, it's just more fun that way. Uh, but I think back, one more example of socialization that I want to point out um, is there... I'm not going to use names, but there was a specific individual who ran for president on a platform called Make America Great Again. If, no, that, is, if that is not an example of socialization, then I don't freaking know what is. Like, You're digging deep into history, Josh. You're digging really <laughs> deep. I, I like it. <laughs> but that, like, the... That I think that that fits so well, unless I'm misunderstanding something. Maybe America was once great for people that look like me, but there's a whole bunch of people that just got isolated when you say make America great again. So, yeah, I always want to 
what what's the time period that they're imagining that this greatness that we're going to be returning to right yeah um is it the 1950s under jim when i don't when my people don't have voting rights and protection under the law are we going further <laughs> um because it only gets uglier from that point forward so i always want to know exactly what it, what's this you know ideal golden age that you're imagining that america was um prior that now that we don't have because right now it's actually with all these problems it's still more inclusive than it's ever been right um more diverse more opportunities than it's ever been and so thinking that we need to go backwards um, is actually a really scary thing. But it shows this idea of American exceptionalism, which I said, you can't think about American exceptionalism except for erasing the experiences of um, black and brown and Native American people and what that actually means in their actual lived experience. So I, I know that Josh had one more question about, I just have one too, uh, just just to kind of clarify something. Um, yeah. So in my, in my upbringing, and I think it's true Probably for many people's upbringing in school, you learn about history, you learn about the slave trade, you learn about the slave period. Um, for the most part, you only learn the names of one, maybe two slaves that are like really big and really important for some reason. And so like, would the, would the concept of socialization be throwing, or I guess, you know, to use a term I don't mean as a pun or any way, but peppering in someone like Harriet Tubman and say like, hey, you learned about Harriet Tubman. So you got the full picture. You got the picture from the white side and from the black side. Um, would that also be something that would be characterized as socialization? Yeah. And, but I think the problem isn't only about who we learn, because I think there's actually power in like, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass story and, and uh, Martin Luther King, right? For example, those are the three, right? And Rosa Parks, right? right? Those right. are the four, right? Yeah. Those are the magic yeah. four. Yeah. Um, but it's how their stories are told also is a part of the socialization, right? So that they get watered down and become like a part of this grand narrative in which it was inevitable that America was just going to become this great nation, right? And so rather than seeing them as uh, like, I mean, Frederick Douglass, his speech on the 4th of July, why don't we teach that to kids, right? That one yeah. gets, so surprisingly, that gets ignored, right? Where he condemns and says that this is not holiday, right? Um, yeah, and, yeah. He, and he calls America out for its hypocrisy. Or Harriet Tubman, who is this black woman with a gun, right? Who's breaking people free um, and resisting, and she's dangerous. I mean, this is a dangerous Scary. black woman, right? Yeah. Um, so this cuddly picture uh, this is resistance its most radical form in the same way that you think about like Nat Turner and these like revolutionaries who go violently in response, right? And are willing to die. Yeah. Um, or Martin Luther King. I mean, I think Martin Luther King, his story gets so domesticated and distorted that he becomes a hero of the American story rather than seeing him as somebody, especially in his later years, he becomes depressed. He, he says his dream turns into a nightmare. We all talk, everyone's talking about, he, I have a dream, but he, his own words are, my dream turns into a nightmare. And he keeps going deeper and he's depressed by the end. And actually America's backlashing against him and rejects him because he speaks against the Vietnam War. And he's pushing for a poor people's campaign, bringing poor black, brown, Native American and white people together is his goal, right? For radical economic change that he believes is necessary, right? Uh, like, so he's making radical critiques as he's wrestling with the black uh, power movement that's rising. His, his critiques are getting harsher and, and, and more stern and focused 
context, right? Um, and he talks about the great triplets of, of racism, materialism, and militarism that are destroying America and that we need a revolution of values, right? These are the things that Dr. King talks about that get ignored for this one little speech, and sometimes only uh, two sentences from his speech, right? Um, and so I think that, um, yeah, all of that um, reflects the kind of socialization that happens. So it's not, I, I think, yes, we need to tell a much richer and fuller truthful story with all the different amazing folks that were participating in it. And the people that we do tell, we need to tell with more honesty and depth and um, integrity. Yeah, sure. And, I, and you know, I think it's one of those things too, like when you think about the founding of our nation, you learn a whole bunch about the white folks behind it. George Washington, the guys that signed the Constitution, guys that wrote the Constitution, you know, but who were, who were the other people, I guess, is the, is the question that I've always kind of, I've always wanted to know, like, who are these other people who are a part of that? And, you know, I'm positive, although it was cultural at the time, I'm positive that there were some black and brown people that were probably a part of that, at least a part of what's going on in that situation. Not necessarily, I mean, you do learn about black people and the way they fought for the revolution. Oftentimes you hear how they were free and it's very specific. You learn that those people were free, that they fought. They fought because they chose to fight and some fought for the British, some fought for the Americans. And uh, there's also very, there's horrific stories you hear of Southerners uh, Britain, when the British, uh, they they offered, they, they put out that they were offering um, to free anybody who chose to fight for them against the colonies in the war, in, in the American Revolution. And so like the, these plantation owners putting that down because they didn't want to lose. It wasn't because they didn't want to win the revolution or they, it was because they, they, they thought they lose. They didn't want to lose their slaves. Right. And so they put that down. Um, but, you know, the thing that I think I'd, I'd like us to get into here, and I know Josh would too, um, sort of this, this thing I think that's been used to kind of push back against this idea of social, socialization, this, this concept that's used to push back against racism in, in today's day and age. You'll hear people, and you'll never hear a black person say this, only a white person. Well, you're just playing the race card. Right. You know, you're you're just you're just using the chance. You've got this. You know, hey, you've got this difference about you. You're gonna play that against me, honestly, for the sake of conversation or argument. Um, and so, I, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about playing the race card? Yeah, I mean, it's it's something I've certainly heard, and I think probably every black person probably has heard that phrase used. In fact, sometimes I often say that you know. It's actually pretty predictable after a while. You can, you know exactly what's coming. And so you can actually prepare for how people are going to, what they're <laughs> going to say, because it's, there's not a lot of creativity per se. It's just these little cliche phrases yeah. that, that um, they try to skirt issue on the surface. But once you go a little bit deeper, then you actually have to have actual conversation about it, right? And so um, the way that I talk about it sometimes is saying like, all right, so let's play, let's go along with this analogy, right? So if we're, if we're thinking about playing the race card, um, then, then what does that actually mean? Because usually people are saying you're playing the race card because you're interpreting an event's um, uh, falsely, right? You're, you're claiming that race shaped a, a particular moment where you might say that was racist in a way that it actually wasn't, right? That's the claim when people say you're playing the race card. So 
me, I say, well, let's imagine you've got a deck of cards, you spread them out and you, um, and you know, you take one card and someone says you're playing the race card because of that, you played that one card wrong. But let's say you take the card and you look at the whole deck and you see the patterns, right? You got four kings, queens, four jacks, four aces, you got diamonds. There's, there's a pattern um, that the deck, right? You can organize the deck um, based on that pattern and you can make sense of how they all fit together. Um, well, I say that often like the black community is kind of approaching racism from that kind of standpoint, not from an individual card, but making sense of this broader deck. That is to say, um, we're making sense of our centuries of history. We're making sense of our, the stories that we've been told that our grandparents lived through and our parents lived through, our own experiences, our brothers and sisters, our friends, our neighbors, folks around the neighborhood. Um, there's actually patterns of things that are happening all around us. And Black people make sense of what racism is based on those kind of broader patterns, not just in, in isolated Incidents, right yeah. and so and if anything I argue that is actually happening is that many people are part of the dominant culture that have bought into the narrative racism is gone already they're the ones who are actually taking an individual moment and then assessing based just on their own ingenuity whether it's racism or not um, while black people are actually looking at much broader patterns of what's going on in their society and so when we see um, uh, let's say an unarmed black person killed, we know that there's many unarmed black people that have been killed for generations. I mean, even Dr. King writes about it in his own time, right? That that was a problem of police brutality and people being killed and stuff like that. That's how Jimmy Lee Jackson and the whole march to Selma was in response to that. They carried his casket um, to Montgomery after that moment. And so um, police brutality has been something that's been going on for a very long time in our communities. Um, and so we make sense of these ice, these um, moments in light of these broader patterns we see. Um, and so my hope is that um, white Christians, instead of getting defensive and deflecting, um, and in fact, one white scholar, Robin DeAngelo, she uses the term white fragility, right? This deflection and defensiveness and shutting down and just deep denial and can't deal with it, all kind of stuff that happens um, where, where you just refuse to just even hear out and try to come to terms with what's happening around us, that that's not a helpful response. And how do we begin to see and, and receive the stories of others, right? To receive the stories of uh, black and brown people across the country and hold it as if it's something sacred, right? Their stories and lived experiences and allow that to shape you and transform you to see the world in new ways. Yeah, and you know, it's one of those things too, a separate idea within the playing the race card mentality as you hear and you know this typically in my opinion or like well, well I should say from my opinion in my experience has been that this only comes from white people to say right. well you know I don't see you black I don't see you as brown I don't see you as Asian or yellow I, I see us all the same I'm colorblind right. we're, we all look the same right. um, or this kind of well you know when black people or minority individuals when they get 
you know, special things, you know, like I remember as a, as a kid, someone saying, you know, in high school, someone saying, well, how come Native Americans get special scholarships, you know, in, for college? Like, that's not fair. That's reverse racism. Right. Reverse racism. Right. And, right. So, like, there are, there are these offshoots of this concept. Uh, how do they, how do they compare or, and like, but then I guess also from, from your perspective, if someone says to you, you know, I, I don't see you as a black man. I, I see you as the same. I'm colorblind. Like, what does that do and how does that affect you um, on a deeper level? Because I'm sure it do, it's not just a thing you can pass off. Like, how does that actually feel and affect you? Um, I mean, number one, it's, it's erasing someone's identity. Right? I mean, <laughs> the, the problem, I always tell people, the problem isn't that there's diversity in the world. Like, that is beautiful, right? We don't have to erase people's identities and difference um, the way that people look. The fact that we have different pigments pigmentation in our skin isn't a problem. Um, and so erasing and saying that you don't notice uh, that we're different is actually kind of offensive because who I am, my culture, my community, all those things actually matter to me and I do them a lot. It shows you don't even um, know us even more. Like you don't, you really, right. you, it proves you really don't know who we are. You really don't know who we are, that's right. Yeah. And so the, the goal isn't to erase and to be colorblind. Um, and in fact, even language of colorblind, it's interesting because if you go back far enough, you will see that actually black people use that language, but they didn't mean what white people mean when they say it. And so white people actually took it. That's why they like quoting <laughs> Dr. King's, um, I have a dream speech, right? Treat everybody by the content of the character, not by the color of the skin, right? So white people cling to that little phrase, but they're not meaning it the same way King meant it or other folks earlier than him meant it. When, when King and others said they meant see people's full humanity and don't judge don't prejudge them based on this. not to array pretend like race isn't a factor because king also went on he would he called out white moderates right uh, in the letter for birmingham jail and he talked about um how white is seen as positive everything good and black is seen as negative so he talked about race and racism and the way that it impacted uh our economics and our structures and access to, inst inst to institutions he talked about those things all the time um, and so white people often say, talk about being colorblind to shut down conversations around racism. And what you actually see is that they're racism blinds, right? They refuse to see racism. But, it's, but, it's, but, but the people that sometimes will say things like, I'm colorblind, five minutes later, they're saying, oh, what about black on black crime? And da, da, da. So they have no time talking about, so that, why isn't it just human crime, right? Yeah. Why is it black on black crime? I'm all of a sudden, right? So it's very selective when they want to talk about race and when they don't. Um, when it has to do with white people and white people potentially being complicit in racism, uh, that's when um, that's off the table and that can't be possible. But if there's black pathologies that we can name, then certainly we're gonna we're gonna be naming them to the fullest, right? That's the yeah. goal. And so um, I think that there's a way in which um, that. So, but it's most black people I think find that offensive um, and it's hurtful and it denies who they are um, but it's also just I, I it's disingenuous I don't believe that they don't see color um, unless they're literally colorblind that's just a disingenuous phrase to begin with yeah. um, and just be honest and and grapple with the world as it is let's acknowledge and we can celebrate and affirm the diversity of humanity and at the same time acknowledge the injustices because of how we assign meaning right social meaning to difference. That's the problem uh, that we need to move beyond. Mm. It seems, it seems to me too, that like being able to say, 
I'm colorblind or I don't see color comes from a place of privilege. Like, cause you, I mean, you talked about <laughs> earlier how like we white dudes, Marty and I, we could go our whole life without stepping into like a black neighborhood or reading black theology or engaging with black culture, any of those things. And we wouldn't be penalized for it. So to say we don't see color, mm, that seems pretty privileged because people, there are other people, uh, black people don't have the ability to say, I don't see color because right. it's so obvious. It's so, it's so obvious. Yeah, this, that's right. Okay. Yeah, I, you can't, I mean, so my kids right now, they go, they live in, we live in Harrisburg. They go to a school, a school that is majority non-white. We probably got like five white kids, right? In the whole school, like barely any. It's actually very diverse on a national level. You got Asians, Latinos, black, right? It's very diverse in many ways, except for white people. That's the one demographic that is not represented very well. Um, because there's a stigma, right? That white people don't come to Allison Hill. And so, um, now I'm losing my train of thought for a second. Um, where were we going? Uh, color blindness is a, is a thing that only- Oh, privilege, yeah, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm having my senior moment, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, they can see race, they can see that their schools are under, these kids, all the kids know that their schools are underfunded. They know they live in poor, districts they know that some of the challenges that they face they see the poverty all that they go into other neighborhoods they see the affluency and they can make the connections that maybe not every single white person is wealthy but there's a connection between white people and wealth that is obvious for children right um they can see that if they know poor white people themselves they can see that these things they can see these boundaries in which they've just entered into white space right and that they get looks funny looks in these places that they don't get when they're in their own neighborhood they don't have the luxury right and when when you get older then um when you have to worry about getting stopped by the police or how you're going to um prepare for this particular interview and worrying about how they're going to perceive you all these things are anxieties that people are carrying with them 24 7 always wondering how people are perceiving and interpreting who they are sometimes to the detriment that people don't that aren't their authentic selves because they think that their authentic selves are not good enough if they don't try to assimilate into white cultural norms, right? And so, I mean, it's, it's a really powerful thing that what most black people cannot um, just pretend like doesn't exist. It impacts their everyday um, lives um, in probably ways that people don't even recognize. Yeah, and I think one more, one more idea that I want to throw in in there that I think ties into this idea and it's something that you you referenced earlier but I wanted to make sure to highlight it because again it was another thing that for me when it was explained I was like oh my goodness like that makes so much sense but you you talk about in your book this idea of scapegoating the bad racist so a lot of people like will look and see and point to the guy on the street corner waving a confederate flag calling people the n-word and they will say that person is a racist thank god i'm not that right but then that does something psychologically that allows us to participate fuller in systems of oppression is, is that yeah that's right so you got the neo-nazi and you're like all right there's this, there's this bad person right that's bad racist and so we make this really strong like categorization good people bad 
people, racist, not racist, right? That's how people kind of frame and think about themselves. And obviously, since the civil rights movement, it's no longer acceptable to be bad racist. That's a bad thing, right? Um, even if we don't think deeply about it, we just know that that category is racist and it's this kind of simple, clean category. And so you have this neo-Nazi, they're bad, we can scapegoat them, look at what they're doing, they're pushing these really ugly things, that's terrible, who would do that? That's so terrible, right? And we can all kind of nod our heads at them. But the problem is, is that the neo-Nazi, who's probably some poor white guy who's frustrated and maybe in some ways is also being squeezed by the economy and all that stuff, right? Like, like they didn't construct racism they didn't develop it they didn't cook it up in the lab somewhere and spread it right they actually if you want to understand where they got their ideas from you just have to learn american history mm -hmm. and then you say oh yeah a neo-nazi like that his ideas make a lot of sense given american history right um it's actually amazing that we have so little nazis given how ugly our history is right um but but by scapegoating them what we do do is, while we're not maybe not participating in some of that old, old school racism, we can be complicit in allowing the institutions and policies and the ways that we organize our society by race to just continue on as though our hands are clean when in fact we silently uh, condone it all the time through silence, right? We say nothing about it. We don't resist it. And so in that sense, and it becomes very little help to talk about not being racist. In fact, that means nothing. In a racialized society, not being racist means nothing at all, right? That means you're just passive. And if you're passive, that means in some ways you're complicit, right? Um, and in fact, most people who are complicit and passive in that sense then are benefiting and are being advantaged by those systems in one way or the other, right? If, if this community doesn't have access and participation, I have more access and advantage, right? More funds, like I talked about in Pennsylvania. Um, if, if you have the school districts underfunded by the state, that's about like 35, 40% of the state funds come from, um, of education come from the state and then the rest is tax base. Um, right now, Pennsylvania overfunds white majority schools um, in extreme ways compared to black and brown and more majority people of color schools. And so white people are being advantaged. They benefit from the disadvantages that of being of these schools being underfunded right so they're being i often say we need new language if we're going to talk about um the disadvantage we've got to talk about the overly advantage right the underprivileged let's talk about overly privileged we need some new language and so um we have to recognize how we're all kind of complicit and bound up in this and as christians like instead of being defensive christians ought to be the ones to say we've all fallen short of the glory of god all sins right that it runs through all of us um, that none of us are clean and got empty hands as it relates to clean hands as it relates to this. And so we ought to be the people that can confess that we're sinful, that we're complicit in systems that harm other people, and then confess, we repent, we seek amends, um, we, we, we go in the other direction, right, as much as that we're able to. And so I think that Christian practices, basic Christian practices, are actually very meaningful when it comes to a racialized society and the systems that we're complicit in. And none of us, including myself, are outside of harm, right? To be in the United States is to be complicit in justice and oppression at home and abroad. All of us, including myself, are a part of it in some way or form. And we've all got to continually uh, take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus more and more each day. Yeah, that, 
man, it's so good. And I, I want to throw one more thing at you real quick. And then Marty, um, Marty wants to, to give us some positive outlook and kind of wrap things up for us. Cause we know you have to, to peace out and we want to respect your time, but you have, you have an entire chapter on this in your book, but I think one more thing that constantly I, I hear people bringing up, I mean, people in my own family bring this up and it's this idea, black lives matter. This has become like white people hate this phrase. Like I remember when I first heard it, I didn't know, like, I was like, Oh, well, are you saying this other thing? Like only black lives matter. And then I did research and I was like, no, of course not. But this, that's such a, a controversial thing. Can you just shine some light on that? <laughs> black yeah. lives matter. Yeah. And I, I've heard uh, some people say like this hear it as black lives matter too. Right. <laughs> like, um, and, and, and again, it can only be offensive if we're ahistorical, right? If we have amnesia about um, our society and our history, the very fact of the matter is, is that we have centuries of anti-Black oppression, anti-Black oppression through slavery for 250 years. If that's the shy, right? If we're not going back to the 16th century, but, but if we started Kingstown in 1619, then 250 years of anti-Black slavery um, then another 100 years of Jim Crow, and then mass incarceration and other forms today that disproportionately impact black communities. And so, and we've seen um, black people being disproportionately killed by police. And not just that they're being killed by, by police, but how people respond to when they're killed by police, right? Because this isn't only about that they're being killed, but there's also the lack of response and lack of accountability by the systems that are supposed to be protecting black communities, that they're allowed to kill black people and there's no consequences for it. And so um, as we see um, you know, neighbors and friends and loved ones killed by police officers, or at the very minimum, we've all seen black people, um, if you live in black communities, brutalized and humiliated by police. I've seen it personally. I've seen neighbors um, with his face down, pushed into the cements by police officers who just want to just show that they're, they're on top, right? And so when you see these things, this anti-Black violence going on that's just so pervasive and it's been going on for centuries, we're saying Black Lives Matter, recognize our humanity, recognize our dignity, recognize that we are also created in the image of God, right? And I can't imagine that if you, if somebody said, um, you know, I love my children, I'm going to be offended and say, don't, well, I, don't we, we need to love all humanity, not just your children. <laughs> How dare you love your children? What is this, this bias that you have about your children over my, that you hate my children? Why do you hate my children? My children are good children. No, but that, 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 nobody would say that, right? And that's without any context of oppression or violence that's been targeted against their children. People feel no problem saying that they love their children. Somehow, when Black people say that Black lives matter, most innocent of phrases in and of itself, right? Not Black people should dominate and enslave white people like we were enslaved and dominated. Just Black lives matter. I mean, that's, that they matter, that they value, that they should be valued, that they shouldn't be killed indiscriminately, right? We're not, I don't think we're asking for that much by saying that phrase. It's the smallest of affirmations. Um, and so that, that has caused so much confusion 
and tension, I think, is because there's just so much anti-black, um, number of there's denial, but anti-black biases that people have that they just refuse to deal with. There's these, I'm going to go ahead and say demons that have to be exercised, right? Um, and, and so, yeah, it should not be the, the issue. We matter too, right? Um, and so with the moment we go to all lives matter and say these universal statements, it's a generic thing that means very little. That's the same reason why Thomas Jefferson could say um, all men are created equal, which number one, it's already patriarchal, but that he says all men are created equal meanwhile he's got hundreds of slaves right so these universal statements are are meaningless unless they're particularized right unless thomas jefferson can say um um that that the lives of of enslaved african people right that they are uh, have dignity worth and value, right? Unless it can be explained in that kind of way, it really means nothing to say these kind of generic universalizing statements. We've got to be particular. And I think in scripture, we see that particularity, right? In Jesus, who, I mean, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, right? We have this beautiful passage where Jesus, it says he didn't take advantage of his uh, equality with God, but he does two things. He takes on the form of humanity it also says that he takes on the form of the doulos, the slave, right? And so there's this broad universal implication, but there's also specificity, those who are most marginal and vulnerable in his society at that day, right? And so if Jesus both um, is not a generic human being, but he came as a particular human being in the first century in Palestine um, under Roman occupation, he lived and lived in solidarity with particular people, those who were most vulnerable. Right? He he uh, was arrested at night as a vulnerable Jew, could be because he wasn't a Roman citizen. He was brutalized specifically under that power, right? And he was given a state-sanctioned execution, right? These are very particular things that happened to him. And in doing so, God has now identified God's self with those who are vulnerable. You could say the crucified of the world. And I think the meaning that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through, I don't know where the verse it ends at, 30 something, um, where God has chosen the weak to shame the strong, right? Um, and, and where Paul says he came to preach Christ crucified, ties those two ideas together. Yeah, that's, that's all really good. Um, and so Drew, I think, as we're just kind of thinking about all this stuff and listeners, I'm going to frame this question in a way where I'm asking for myself, um, mostly in some ways because I want to know from myself also. Um, but I want you as listeners to take the way I'm framing this question and I want you to apply it to you in your own context, in your own uh, life, however you live your life, because I think it's important, but I, I, I this question needs to be personal I don't think it's a generalization. I think it needs to be personal. Um, so Drew, just moving forward. So today, today is March, or, or it's, I'm sorry, it's May 18, 2020. So going forward from today, what can I do, the person, to, I guess, to change the narrative? But more so, not just change what the discussion, because I think it, this goes beyond having conversations, because I think even living within my privilege as a white male, it's really easy for me to have this conversation with you, a black male, but then go back to my white privilege. Like when we're done with this call, we're going to hang up and I'm going to go to my 
all white right. family and we're going to have, we're going to, when we go to the store tomorrow or whatever day we need to go to the store, we're going to be able to live within that white privilege that we have. So this conversation, me personally, it has to go to another level and just stay here at conversation. So what can I do and what do I need to do to change this from conversational to action to, to making this, I guess, to, to frame it in a really personal way. What can I do to show that I'm a teammate, not an adversary, that, I, that, I, that, I, that I'm, or even not even an adversary, not even to go that extreme. What can I do to show that I am a part of this with you and alongside, and how do I do that? Because I don't know. I generally don't know. Like, genuinely, I don't know how to do that. What can I do? Yeah. Um, I'd say the, the first thing is, um, and this is explicitly for white Christians, right? Um, that to, to take seriously, that there has to be a journey of figuring out what it means to do explicitly anti-racist discipleship, right? The first step. Explicitly anti-racist discipleship. Um, because I do think that, as we mentioned, racism is not just a sociological, it's a theological problem as well, and it's bound up in our churches. Um, and this means, and when I say discipleship, I don't, I do mean there's learning that has to happen along with the way, but I don't just mean learning. I actually mean ways of living, new practices, right, also along the way. And this can only be done, like true discipleship is not a lone ranger sport. It's done in community. Yeah. And in some ways, there's no way out of this, or at least it's very difficult to do it by yourself, right? Um, it's hard to sustain anything meaningful by yourself. <clears throat> so you need to find a group of people, and it may start with just white people, right, who are going to come together and say, like, need to figure this thing out. Now, there are lots of resources, and I do think, like, trouble I've seen, I think, is a point uh, for that. And I do think there's actually important white work to be done, right, in white communities as people are learning new history and thinking about what it means for Christian discipleship. Um, folks need to have really hard conversations in their churches, in their families, among their families and friends, neighborhoods, co-workers, all that stuff, right? Um, there's white work to be done. In fact, I often say, when white people say to me, no, well, I can't do anything. I live in an all-white neighborhood. I'm like, that means you're in the center of the action. Yeah. <laughs> you're right, point zero. You can start. There's a lot of work to be done there, right? Um, because there's a lot of things that are just default then, right? All the white normativity is just um, often no one's even saying anything at all in those spaces. And so, so being in a white neighborhood in and of itself isn't a place where nothing can be done. Um, but it does need to, as you said, move away from just uh, the there's a way in which progressive and liberal leaning folks can sometimes just move to doing book studies all the time yeah. where they're learning new things, but it never translates into solidarity. Right. Yeah. Um, and so there needs to be ways in which now I don't rush people too quickly. Like I don't think I don't want people just running out doing things because sometimes there's some things that we got to undo first. Right. Um, but it, do, it needs to translate into solidarity and action and it needs to translate into joining and figuring out what are the good work that's already happening around us. How can we join in and participate? And oftentimes as followers rather than leaders, right? Um, which I think helps to, it breaks the hierarchy, it flips it on its head, right? Where the first or last, the last, the first, all of a sudden 
students rather than teachers, right? Um, and in that context, building relationships and working for change in communities, I think that that's a great opportunity. But I do think that the anti-racist discipleship piece is huge. And so like getting people together to do a study and to actually unpack that and to figure out like, where do we go from here? How do we go deeper? both in terms of learning, but also in terms of our practices and our actions and how we do life, right? And eventually it may call even hard things, right? Like sometimes we think, we ask the question like, what is it to be faithful where we live now? But maybe the next question eventually might be is, should I be living where I'm living, right? <laughs> and, and what if God had me live somewhere else um, that doesn't conform so much to the pattern of our society, right? These are part of, and there's others like that that we could go into. Um, but I think that's probably not the first step. There's other steps before that that we've got to kind of work through. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I just think I know I know you, you have to get going, but I think for me, concept, and I want to make sure our listeners hear this is that if you are a white male or a white female, you are not the savior that's going to swoop in and solve the problem. Right, right. Just like you know, when we talk about mission trips, and then I know that's a totally separate issue, you know, we tell people all the time, like, listen, you're not going to go on this mission trip to a third world country and solve every problem they have. You like to get rid of this Messiah complex, I think is really important. And when you said, Drew, to go in, not as a leader, as a follower, I think like, that is so huge. Like, because I'm, I'm honest when I say, I have very little understanding of black culture and very little understanding of just what it means to be a black person in America and in our world. So me then to assume, well, hey guys, guess what? I got sorts of grand ideas and we're going to swoop and we're going to solve this whole thing tonight. And uh, when you listen to the podcast, everything's going to be fixed and solved and we're going to be in a great shape. Like, I think we've got to take that Messiah complex that white people like to have about everything they do right. and set it aside. We're going to do any work here um, to bridging this. So. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I co-sign all of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Drew, this has been so great and I know you have to go. So thank you so much. Um, I hope listeners, we have barely, we have scratched the surface here. There is so much depth to this conversation and hopefully Drew, I know you mentioned at the, the outset of things that you have a new book coming out, I think in September, right? Uh, right. called who will be a witness and hopefully uh, if you enjoyed your time with Marty and I today maybe we can have a conversation continue our conversation we're having here uh, yeah. and talk about your new book uh, who will be and in many ways the the book which in some ways will answer some of your questions but it gets more into that right it's a kind of a follow-up um, to help and it's for churches broadly but Christians individuals but especially for communities groups right to be thinking about what can we be doing in response to our racialized society sweet yeah man well we'll be sure to link trouble i've seen in the show notes and then also is there anywhere else you would like to, to point people to where they can find uh drew hart at yeah i mean you can find me on twitter d-r-u-h-a-r-t same thing for instagram i'm um a co-host for a podcast called inverse podcast with jared mckenna who's from australia so we have some kind of cool international conversations um and yeah, you can, uh, along with Trouble I've Seen, you can find Tool Witness um, on Amazon and other places for pre-sale right now. Sweet. Well, thank you, Drew, so much for this conversation. Uh, thank you for everything, man. We super duper appreciate it. We look forward to, to talking with you again in the, the future. 
Well, thanks for having me. This has been great. Yeah, yeah man. Peace. And uh, listeners, go Caps. Go Blackhawks. And I suppose, go Flyers. Boo. <laughs> just for Drew. Just for Drew. All right. <laughs> peace, everybody. Uh...